All right, we'll grab your copy of the Bible. Open up to Mark chapter 14. We are continuing in our series. This is what we do. If you're not aware, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, section by section, verse by verse, trying to understand all that God has revealed about His Son in this Gospel. As you're turning there, uh, I know that you, like me, are tempted to sin at times. The temptation is real. I wonder when you are most tempted to sin. When is it that you are most tempted to sin? I think one of the most dangerous temptations that we face to sin are when we have been sinned against. Don't you find that to be true? That when you are sinned against, that you feel justified in responding sinfully to the person who sinned against you? This is what we often do. Sinful anger is contagious. We are sinned against. We respond sinfully to being sinned against. To which the person who we then respond sinfully to responds sinfully to our sin. A whole whirlwind of sin is taking place. I think it is accurate to say that temptation increases. Our temptation to sin increases when someone has sinned against us. We are tempted to lose our temper when someone has lost their temper toward us. We probably have experienced this, have we not? In our marriages or in our families or with our friends, that if you were calm at one moment and then someone accuses you or slanders you or lashes out at you, suddenly you feel something rise up within you to get back at the person who hurt you. The moment of temptation that many of us are really familiar with, and it's that in your mind, that that way of thinking that I want to now draw our attention to our text. If you remember last Sunday, it was Resurrection Sunday. It was a Sunday we... Uh, All gather in the tent, we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were just plodding through our series on Mark, and we were looking at chapter 14, verses 43 to 52, and we looked at how Judas betrayed Jesus, how the religious leaders arrested Jesus, and how the disciples abandoned Jesus. All these supposedly good people, all these religious people were uh, the ones who committed this egregious evil in handing Jesus over. And now we're continuing on this dark night. Uh, He's been arrested. Jesus has been arrested. He's been handed over. He's now with the religious authorities. And what's about to happen is one of the most gross injustices you could ever imagine. What we're going to look at this morning is going to be one of the most strange ironies in the Bible. In our text, we're going to see Jesus face a sham trial in a kangaroo court filled with lying witnesses, all done by those who would be fastidious keepers of the law, and they will do this whole thing in entirely unlawful ways. This is the trial. Uh, You might need to put scare quotes around this word trial. This is the trial of Jesus. The religious elites who pride themselves on being keepers of the law, are going to proceed in the most unlawful ways to try to kill Jesus. 
They are supposed to be those who keep the justice, and this whole event is going to be a mockery of justice. Uh, these are the religious leaders who pride themselves in being uh, righteous before God, being meticulous in keeping the standards God has given in His law, and none of what they're going to do is legitimate. None of what they're going to do this evening is legal at all. It, none of it at all is comporting with the jurisprudence of the day. Jesus will face this violation of justice, he will see the radical corruption of the religious leaders up close. And what's perhaps most remarkable about this text is how Jesus responds. Because we we think of the the garden, you know, when Jesus is praying and he prays, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We think of that as this incredible temptation, and most certainly it is. It is remarkable that Jesus overcomes this temptation to put away the suffering and to do his own thing. He does uh, submit to the Father's will and continues on the path toward the cross. But we might forget that this moment here, this trial that Jesus is about to face is another tempting moment for him. Isn't it tempting in your own life to lash out angrily when you're slandered? When your reputation is being dragged through the mud? When people are accusing you of things you did not do? It's remarkable the composure that we'll see in Jesus here. I want two main things to happen as we look at the text. First, And foremost, my my biggest prayer in this is that our appreciation for Christ would grow. That we would just be more in awe of Him. That you would desire this week to worship Him for the way He withstood this temptation. But also, in in addition to growing in our adoration, my, my second prayer is that we as a people would actually see this text as a paradigm for how we ought to live as well. That we would actually aim to be like Jesus in how He faced injustice, mockery, ridicule, slander, accusation. Do you think that it's possible to be a faithful Christian long without being misunderstood? Maybe marginalized? Maybe at worst, persecuted? We're going to be faithful as a church. This most certainly will come our way. How do we face it? We'll have to look at our Lord and ask how He faced it. We're going to look through, and I'm going to kind of lead us through the text. And as we do this kind of study, I'm going to draw out some observations. There will be four main ones. I'm not going to give them to you yet. I want you to follow along with me, grapple with the text a little bit, and then we're going to point them out as we go. And so let's start reading the whole thing, and then we'll study it more in depth. Let's look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter followed him at a distance. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. I'm going to begin working through the text, drawing out observations for how Jesus faced this sinful attack on him, how he faced it perfectly admirably, and how we ought to follow His example in this. First, let's look at it to admire Him, and then let's look at it to imitate Him. Alright, it says there in verse 53, let's follow along, it says, and they, this is the they that would point us back to the people who came with Judas, there in verse 43, Judas came, it says, one of the twelve, with the crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and elders, now they've taken Him, the betrayal has taken place. The arrest has taken place. Now they're taking him off to the high priest. Now I'm going to insert something that is not here in Mark because it's something that John includes and I just want to highlight it so you get a feel for the timeline of events. Before he goes to the high priest that's mentioned right here in Mark, on the way from the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where he was arrested, remember he's praying, he's praying to the Lord, he's with his disciples, and as he's doing that, that's when Judas comes. He has now been arrested and he's walking from the garden all the way to the high priest's house. Now that's where he's taken in verse 53. Now John chapter 18 includes a stop along the way that before they get to the high priest Caiaphas's home, We'll talk about Caiaphas in a moment. They stop at Caiaphas's father-in-law, whose name was Annas. You'll read more about him in John chapter 18. Now, Annas was the one who many scholars say that this guy's the mastermind behind it all. He's not mentioned as much as Caiaphas, but he would have been the one that was pulling the strings. He was at uh, he was around 80 years old at this point. He had served as a high priest. He was still called a high priest. Because people respected him, honored him, and he had all kinds of power in the religious world in Jerusalem during those days. He was incredibly and enormously wealthy, and it seems as if he used his money to get what he wanted and to get things done. Actually reading all the different accounts and the commentaries and the books that describe the events of this evening, this this stop at Annas' house, I wanted to kind of get a feel for who this Annas guy was. And the best comparison that I could think of in my brain was Vito Corleone, the godfather, right? Like this guy is overseeing it all. He's got people who work for him. He's got corrupt priests that work for him. He's got people on his paycheck. He's making sure that they get the money, they get things done. He, he's kind of this mastermind. Many of the scholars are, 
are saying that he's the one that had the ideas of how to do this, what to do. And so on the way to Caiaphas' house, they stop with Annas. They bring him before Annas. And Annas starts questioning him about uh, what, do you, what do you teach? What do your disciples teach? What do you, he starts asking him about his teaching and his disciples, it says, there in John 18. And, and, and Jesus basically responds, responds, I've been teaching in the temple. I've been public. None of this has been secret. Everything I've been doing has been for all of you to see and hear and evaluate. Why are you, why are you asking me like you don't know? Go ask, the, go ask everyone in the temple. They've all heard what I've been saying. And the, the guard standing next to Annas slaps Jesus, uh, uses his fist to give him a blow, and rebukes him for talking to Annas that way, which shows how much loyalty Annas had, that if you even suggested that he did something wrong, people were ready to beat you up for it. Basically, Annas is sick of Jesus. He, he doesn't like how he responded to him and sends him on. So this is the short event Mark, or Mark doesn't include because it happened on the way to Caiaphas where really the events take place. And this is where we are in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, Caiaphas. This is Caiaphas. Now, what's interesting about this meeting here is they're going to go to Caiaphas's estate. Ordinarily, a case like this would be adjudicated in the market halls during the day. This is a meeting of the religious elite in a private residence in the middle of the night. Okay? Why would they be doing this? Remember, he's praying in the middle of the night when he gets arrested. We sometimes forget that this is all happening when it's under cover of darkness. That this is all happening from probably somewhere between 12 a.m. midnight to 3 a.m. And so they rush him over to Caiaphas' home, the Sanhedrin, that is the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, this ruling class of religious leaders, they're all gathering in Caiaphas' personal headquarters. They all came together. They're called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was this big group of 70 of these leaders and then one high priest. There were 71 total. They always needed to have an odd number. So if there was a vote and there was a tie, then the head priest or the high priest could break the vote. They would uh, do these types of things. These, they would uh, address these types of cases ordinarily publicly in the open. And here they're doing something entirely different. The, the reason is... Because they want to get Jesus arrested and killed before daylight. They're on a time crunch here. They want to get this all taken care of. They want him to be accused. They want him to have a crime labeled and pinned to his name so that when the sun is up, they can feel justified in presenting him to the Romans with a good reason that this guy needs to die. And so this is what's happening. This is kind of the setting that we're getting in verse 53. You see, look there in verse 54. It says that Peter had followed him. You know, he had just fled. He's terrified for his own life. You know, he, he, when he's getting arrest, Peter slices at the high priest's uh, servant's ear, takes that off. Jesus heals him. And then Peter doesn't know what to do. He runs off now. But now he, he's like stuck between two desires. He, he can't just totally abandon Jesus, but he can't just go be with Jesus. And so he's kind of following at a distance. It says he went right into the courtyard of the high priest. 
the high priest's estate would have been massive. The courtyard would have been pretty huge. And he comes along into the courtyard. And we learn from later verses that he would have been kind of in a lower setting, that the place where Jesus was was up kind of on a hill. And Peter could kind of see what was happening. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus could actually look back and see Peter. And that will come into play when Peter denies Jesus. Peter's there. There's nothing. Mark's not really telling us all the details of what's happening to Peter. That'll happen next week when we look at the denial. All Mark is doing here is just telling you Mark's there. Okay? You've got to locate Mark. You've got to know where he is. He's following him. Look at what it says. It's like he's sitting with the guards. I, I wonder how this played out. You know, Peter just tried to kill the, one of these guys. And, and the guy got healed, and now he's standing with them. Apparently, they didn't care to arrest Peter. Like Peter's right there. He's a sitting duck. If they wanted him, he's with the guards. He's warming himself at the fire. It would have been a cool night. So Peter can't run entirely, but he can't stay close enough. He's staying at a distance. He's hanging out in the crowd. And that's going to set the table for next week when he denies Jesus. There he is. Jesus has been led away. Middle of the night. Under cover of darkness. Try to get an accusation that will stick so that they can kill Him in the morning. I want to just point out something about Jesus here. It's really fascinating to me that look at verse 53, you see that first verb? And they led Jesus to the high priest. They, They led Him. You know, so many times when you read the Gospel, is Jesus the one who's the actor? Jesus is the one, the subject of the verb. He's the one that's doing the things. He's the one who's teaching. He's the one who's healing. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who's instructing. He's the one who is doing the miracle. He's the one that's leading the way. He's the one who's making the story progress. And here, Jesus is being acted upon. Our first point, our first observation Jesus chose arrest and not escape. Because you know He could have escaped, right? He could have put an end to this, couldn't He? The One who calmed the raging storm? The One who had the power to make something out of nothing and feed thousands? The One who raised the dead? He could have escaped. He could have made it all come to an end. He could have done something to cause them to all become confused and get away. Here, He submits Himself and He is led away. Aren't you reminded of Isaiah's prophecy? That He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He is submitting Himself to what He knows His calling is. That His calling is to suffer and to die. To pay the penalty for the sins of His people. He chose to be arrested. Could have escaped. Church, I wonder how we could follow this example in our own lives. That we too have a calling toward obedience. And that so often that calling will require discomfort Certainly. And often, suffering. Sometimes obedience is costly, isn't it? 
You talk to missionaries. One day when we get to heaven, you talk to martyrs. They will tell you sometimes the cost of obedience is your own life. And sometimes it will be your reputation. Sometimes it will be your social standing with your neighbors or people at your work. But have you settled it in your mind that it is better to suffer than to sin? Have you made that clear in your own conviction that I would rather suffer than sin? Jesus is choosing the path of obedience which includes suffering rather than walk away from what God had called Him to do. Let's continue. Verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, this is the Sanhedrin there, it would have been a quorum. They would have got enough together to do their work, their dirty work in the middle of the night. They were, interestingly, I find this funny, that they were gathered together as those who are supposed to do justice, keep justice, apply the law, and they're doing it entirely in an unlawful way. And yet, they're still trying to keep the semblance of law-keeping. Look at this. They're, They're gathered in the middle of the night, and it says they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. In other words, they're not just going to kill Him right there. They want to do it in a way that appears to be following the law. All right, we're going to try to get some people to testify against Jesus. They start looking for them. They're seeking uh, testimony. What does that mean? I mean, that's an active verb, isn't it? They're seeking it out. What that means is that these religious leaders are going around Jerusalem in the middle of the night trying to secure people who will go up front and testify before the Sanhedrin to give testimony to something that Jesus did that would be wrong. That's what they're trying to do. they got to condemn Him for something. They got to make sure that he has a valid reason. What's interesting here is this is is this the way that you you do a trial? Like you start with I want to kill him and then you move to trying to find a good reason to kill him. Like you start with the death penalty and then you start trying to concoct something that will be worthy of the death penalty. This is entirely a backwards form of justice. This is I'm going to start by presuming that you are guilty. I'm going to move forward with your condemnation even though I don't yet have anything that you've done that would merit the death penalty. This is what they're doing. They've already decided that they want to kill him. Now, just to help you see the the craziness of this whole thing, the Jewish people had developed their law code from the law of Moses, right? So the, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these are all given in the Old Testament. That's called the Torah. That was the law. That's what the Jews built their own justice system upon. It was built off the law, God's law. And at this point, they had a thoroughly developed justice system. When someone was accused as a criminal, there were protections for the accused, just as there are in our own society. They were allowed public trial. The public trial needed to take place during daylight hours so it could be public. They were allowed, those who were accused were allowed an adequate opportunity to make a defense. Before a person could be declared guilty, there had to be two, at least two witnesses. The witnesses had to agree. This is all very clearly explained in Numbers and Deuteronomy that if there is going to be an accusation, if the accusation is going to stick, and if their crime is going to be punished, the the witnesses who are testifying have to have a testimony that agrees. 
And if you even disagreed on some of the smallest details, the court was dismissed or the case was dismissed and the crime could not be punished no matter what the accusations were. If the witnesses were not agreeing, you couldn't move forward. And so what's happening here is they're trying to get all these witnesses and they're trying to find those who will give testimony. You better believe that they're using their temple money to secure these people and bribe them so that they'll bring them in so they could say something. But it says that the witnesses they're getting aren't working. They found none. So people are coming, they're giving witnesses or giving testimony, but they're not able to actually do anything that sticks. They're, they're all disagreeing with one another. Verse 56 says, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so even though they're doing some things entirely apart from the law, entirely unjustly, they're still trying to appear as if they're following the law. And so they can't really move forward unless these testimonies agree, but none of them do. None of them do. All of this is a complete miscarriage of justice. Now, the reason they're trying to get these people to agree, these lying witnesses to agree, is because who's in charge? Is it the Jews? It actually isn't. The Jews are under Roman authority at this point. And the Romans were very good about letting the Jews have their kind of free reign in a lot of areas. But the Romans would not allow their subjects, the Jews, to have the power of the sword. The Romans held on to that one. They didn't allow the Jews to be able to do capital punishment. Any capital crime had to be brought to the Romans. What are they doing? They have to come up with a crime to bring to the Roman leadership so that the Romans can give permission to kill Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. So not only do they need a crime, they need a capital crime. They need to find something worthy of the death penalty. And so they're seeking anything, something that they can put together, that they can present to Pilate. They can say, look, he's worthy of death. Let's kill him. None of the testimonies are agreeing. They find nothing. Finally, verse 57 indicates they finally find something that might work. Look at verse 57. It says that some stood up. In Matthew, we get the account. It mentions that there's two witnesses that do this. They stand up and they witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Where did they get that from? Did Jesus actually say that? No, he didn't. This is a manufactured claim. The closest you get is in John 2, verse 19, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And what was he talking about? He was actually talking about himself. Uh, He was talking about the temple of his body, the text says. This is what the disciples came to understand, that he wasn't talking about this temple. He was saying to the religious leaders, if you destroy this temple this temple, then I'm going to rise up on the third day. But they don't. They, they, they pull it out of context. They twist it all around. And now they're saying, he said he would destroy the temple. That he's going to build a new temple. Who does he think he is? And so they get these two witnesses that are claiming that Jesus is going to be an insurrectionist. He's going to be destroying the temple. He's going to build a new temple. But look at what it says. But even that, verse 59... Even about this, their testimony didn't agree. So even this can't be something they use against Jesus. They they can't even use this because the details, they can't agree on it. 
it's probable that the Sanhedrin is hoping that Jesus is going to say something in self-defense that will be self-incriminating. That they're trying to put all these accusations, all these people saying, this is what he did, that, this is what he said, this is what he's going to do, this is what kind of man he is, and hoping that Jesus will rise up and defend himself. No, that's not what I did, this is who I am, and rile up Jesus, cause him to lose some self-control, and then pin something on him based on what he just said. But they can't do it. Look at what it says that Jesus is doing. It says, now even verse 60, the high priest stood up and asked him, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testified against you? Verse 61, but he remained silent. Made no answer. He did not even think that their accusations were worthy of response. How often are you tempted to retaliate? How often are you tempted to slander those who slander you? To return the favor, they did it. And so I have the right to now do it back to them. They started it. I've heard that one before. Consider the self-control, the composure, the poise of our Lord. Peter, reflecting on this later in his life as an old man, in his first epistle, in chapter 2, verse 23, he said, when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How did he do that? This is Peter's take. Listen to this. It says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is our second point. That Jesus chose trust not self-defense. He entrusted Himself to the Father rather than rise up angrily and defend Himself. He entrusted His reputation to the Father. He entrusted His body to the Father. He entrusted all this situation. I'm giving it to You, God. You will deal with this. I will not deal with this. I wonder if you do this, Christian. When you are misunderstood, when you are accused, whether it's something that happens in your marriage, whether it's something that happens in your household, whether it's something that happens in your work, what do you do when there's an accusation that comes your way? What should you do? Did you know that in those moments, you should follow the example of Jesus and entrust yourself to God? Rather than rise up, in self-defense, you should entrust yourself to God like Christ. You know, if the person who hurt you is a believer, then you can know for certain that the sins they committed against you have already been paid for on the cross. Who are you to make them pay for those sins? And if they're an unbeliever and they accuse you or they hurt you in that way, Are you going to make them pay for their sins? Is that your role? No, they will pay for their sins. God will be the one who judges. You entrust yourself to God. Like Jesus, God said, vengeance is mine. You know what that means? Not yours. 
Vengeance is not our responsibility. Retaliation is never your responsibility, Christian. Do we understand this? We are not to be those who go try to mete out vengeance on our enemies and to retaliate to those who hurt us. We entrust ourselves to God. We do not demand payment from those we know that God will require payment in His way and in His time. When Jesus' reputation was maligned, when His name was dragged through the mud, when He was accused of things He did not do, He entrusted Himself to God. Church, let's pray that we would do the same thing. Okay? Let's pray that we would act this way with each other. That we would act this way if persecution comes our way. That we would act this way when we ourselves are accused. That we would choose trust, not defensiveness. Keep going. Because we see that Jesus actually did not remain quiet the entire time. The high priest says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He remains silent and made no answer. But then the high priest seems to be getting more and more worked up here. He's infuriated. And it says he, he bursts out. Again, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ? So he basically, let's get down to the bottom line. Let's, let's get down to the very core issue here. Let me ask you the question we all want to hear you answer. Let's not beat around the bush anymore. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed king? Are you the one that was promised to Israel? Is this what you're claiming? Because the Jews here did believe that a Messiah was coming. They did believe it. They were just not sure that it was Jesus. They didn't believe it was Him. And so they want to know, are you claiming to be the one sent by God, the anointed one who will rule in Israel, who will judge His enemies, who will bring restoration, who will establish the covenant? Are you that one? And then he says, look at the second part of his question. The Son of the Blessed, which is another way of saying, are you the Son of God? The Jews didn't want to say the name of God out loud, and so they would use what's called a circumlocution. They would speak around the word. Instead of saying the Son of God, they would say the Son of the Blessed. But it meant the same thing. He's asking them, are you claiming to be the Messiah promised by God in the Old Testament Scriptures and the very Son of God Himself? There are many scholars who say that this answer is the climax of the entire book of Mark. It all has been leading up to this. You probably remember, if you've been here for the last couple of years, as we've been in Mark, that there are several times when people start to get a grasp of who Jesus is. They saw Him heal. They saw Him cast out a demon. They hear His teaching. And they're amazed. They're astonished. And Jesus does this surprising thing. It happens multiple times in this book where He tells them, don't go tell anyone. You know who I am. Don't go tell anyone. Because if you tell anyone, what would have happened is that people would have thought they knew who the Messiah was. They already had some preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was. They would have thought, oh, here's the Messiah. They would have taken their preconceived ideas. They would have labeled them on Jesus. And they would have had a complete misunderstanding of who he was, what he came to do. They were not supposed to tell about Jesus because Jesus wanted to let some time pass so he could teach who he was. 
so he could show who he was, and ultimately, so he could die on the cross, rise again, and that would make it clear that he was not the Messiah that they expected. He was something entirely different. That he didn't want them spreading a false idea of who the Messiah was. And so he told them, shh, don't say anything. They didn't often obey, but that's what he told them to do. Well, now, here in the middle of the night, for the religious elite, question is crystal clear. The question is direct. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And his answer is just as direct as the question. Look at this. I am. I wonder what you think. You're not a Christian. So glad that you're here. Hope that you continue to return and study Jesus. I wonder what you think about the claims that Jesus made. We hear He is claiming be God's anointed King and the very Son of God. Is He crazy? Or is He telling the truth? What's actually happening here is more than what meets the eye. He says, I am. Hmm. In Greek, ego ami. Two words that are directly tied to the divine name Yahweh itself. Remember when God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush? I am that I am. That God's name means I am. That God is the all-existent one. The self-sufficient one. That He has always been and always will be. Therefore, He is I am. When Jesus responds by saying, Ego ami, I am. This is linking Himself to the God of the universe. That He is making a claim that you, you want to know who I am. Uh, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you the name of God, Yahweh. I am the God who made you. I am your God, Israel. And I'm here standing in front of you. I am. The Jews knew this too, by the way. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is being arrested, it says that He says these same words, I am. And all the guards fall back in shock. Because they knew what He was claiming. That the one right there is God. The, the, the Jews would have been faced with a decision that this either is a man who's telling us the truth or he's insane. And if he wasn't clear, look at what he continues on in his statement in perhaps the most clear expression of who Jesus understood himself to be. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He combines two Old Testament texts. Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. And he quotes or alludes to Daniel 7.13 where the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days and He appears in the clouds and He is given glory and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. 
The Jews would have known what he's claiming. The one who sits at the right hand of the Father is the one who has the same authority and power as God Himself. And the one who is the Son of Man who comes in the clouds of glory is the divine King, is the divine Judge of the world. This is a divine claim. Jesus is making a claim to deity here. Not only by using the divine name, ego ami, saying I am, but also by putting himself as the fulfillment of Psalm 110 in Daniel 7, he understood himself to be the divine Messiah who has come to save his people and to who will one day rule forever. Unmistakable claim. He has unflagging certainty about who he is. I love his answer. (laughs) It's as if he's saying, you're making a mockery of me now. A mockery of justice now. But one day, you will see me for who I am. And you will see me in glory. I will appear as the fulfillment of of all the Scriptures you say you know and you say you believe. And I will be your judge. Now you act like you're my judge. But I am the Son of Man. I will return to judge the world and reign forever. I want to just reflect on this for a moment. This reality of the character of Jesus should help us understand the gospel more clearly, shouldn't it? In many places, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so ask Him into your heart. Is the extent of the gospel we know. And that's maybe a part of it. But perhaps a fuller way to understand the gospel is to understand that Jesus is the true King. That Jesus is the true Son of God who will one day return to set up His kingdom, and all of us have been rebels, and all of us are guilty of sin against Him, and all of us have ignored His rule and reign, and therefore all of us could be rightly executed by Him when He returns for treason, but that this King has offered terms of peace, to all who would hear His Gospel, where He says, admit your rebellion. Admit your sin. Bend the knee. Become My subjects. And do this. And I will forgive you. And I will adopt you. I will make you My very own. I will transform you. I will save you. And I will lavish upon you the riches of My own kingdom. Trust Me. It is more than just asking Jesus into your heart. It is recognizing who He is in repenting, laying down our arms, laying down our rebellion, and bending the knee before Him and saying, You are Lord. You are God. You are King. You are Judge. And I will live my life for You. That is His claim. And there is no half-hearted response to that. He doesn't allow such a half-hearted response. You fall on your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and you call Him your Lord and your God. 
or you blaspheme Him. But half-hearted indifference is no option. Half-hearted appreciation for some things about Jesus is not what He requires. He claims to be the living God and the Judge and the King. It says that the high priest tore his garments. Grandstanding at its finest. They say that sometimes these high priests had garments that were like pre-torn. That you could have actually some, you know, you know, seams that were already a little bit ready to be ripped. And then after you'd rip them, you would, you know, send them back to the seamstress. They'd, you know, get them sewed again. you get them back. And you can rip it again on the next occasion that you need to rip your garments. So the, the, the thing here is an outward display of another evidence of their, their own hypocrisy. Oh, I can't believe you said that. Tearing his garments. Outrage. But he wants to persuade, the high priest wants to persuade the rest of the Sanhedrin to just move forward with this. To take what he just said as incriminating enough to now pin the death penalty on him. And so he cries out, what further witnesses do we need? Verse 64, you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? So I'm not sure they actually found any capital crime there. In fact, what will Pilate say when he gets brought before Pilate? What, what did he do? What did he do? But here they, they claim that he's committing blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. This is the same thing that happened in Mark chapter 2. If you remember when he healed the guy, he said, your sins are forgiven. And they all go, what? Only God could forgive sins. And, well, yeah, that's the point. He's God. It's blasphemy. Only God can do that. Well, if you're God, it's not blasphemy. And what's happening here is he's, he's telling the truth about who he is and they call it blasphemy because they don't believe him. He is crazy to make these claims unless they're true claims. So they all condemn him as deserving death. It says they all condemn him as deserving death. And I just want to point out another observation of what Jesus chose in this, in this night, this dark night in this trial. He chose truth over self-preservation. See that? He could have said something else. I mean, I suppose that he could have dodged it or he could have remained silent. But at this point, he actually decides to tell the truth about who he is, knowing that it will be a death sentence for him. He gives them what they need to move forward in pinning a crime on him. He tells them who he is. I find this to be an incredible example for each one of us. How many of us need to speak up more about Jesus? And tell the truth about who He is. No matter what it will cost. No matter how my people respond to it. I mean, to some that we share the Gospel with, we tell them about Jesus, it will be life unto life. They'll be so glad we tell, told them the Gospel. And there will be some that we tell the truth about who Jesus is and they will hate it. And that's what the Bible warns us that's going to happen. That's the way it is. Some people who are God's Elect will respond to the gospel message with love and commitment and salvation, and others will hate it and reject it. I wonder if you tell the truth about Jesus. I wonder if your life is telling the truth about Jesus. I wonder if you evangelized at all the last month. You told anyone 
the truth about what Christ has done, about His character. I hope there's not a lot of us who are submitting to the fear of man and so allowing our desire to be approved kill our evangelism. For those of us who do do that, we should repent and aim to be more like Jesus who speaks up about who Jesus, who He is even when it will cost Him. Let's pray that we would be more like Jesus here. Willing to die, but never willing to compromise the truth. He chose to be arrested instead of to escape. He chose to entrust himself to God rather than to be defensive. He chose to tell the truth rather than preserve himself. Now let's come to the very end. Verse 65, it says that some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Here we see that he chose suffering, not comfort. How insulting this is to our Lord, isn't it? They were spitting on him. These religious men, given the responsibility to do justice and keep the law, have now lowered themselves to the point of just spitting on this person they despise. I mean, they hate Him. What devilish influence is in their hearts right now. That they just despise the Lord and they're spitting on Him. It says they cover His face. They're blindfolding Him. And then they begin striking Him. Hitting Him repeatedly. Jesus can't see where the blows are coming from. They're mocking Him again and again. These aren't criminals or gangsters or thugs. These are religious leaders who are doing this to Him. Religion has never made anyone good. We need not religion. We need a Savior. But here they are in their religion thinking themselves to be justified as they commit one of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world. They beat him mercilessly. Jesus takes it. He chooses it. He doesn't flee. We'll close by asking this question, why? Why is he doing this? I mean, we've got to pause from time to time and as we look through the Gospel of Mark and say, why does he do this? He's God in the flesh, isn't he? He made these people. He fashioned them in their mother's wombs. He knows them better than they know themselves. And they're beating him up and they're hitting him and they're blindfolding him and they're mocking him. He could have got out of this. He could have escaped. He could have defended himself. He could have done something else. And he's choosing the road to suffering. But can't you see why? Isn't it? Isn't it true that He has come to lay His life down? That He came to seek and to save the lost? That He came to give His life as a sacrifice of atonement to make payment for the sins of those who rejected Him? That God who is just requires punishment for sin, but God entered into His own creation in the person of Jesus Christ and He took on Himself the sins of everybody who would ever repent 
and believe. He took on Himself their guilt, on Himself himself their shame. He took their sins. He bore them. And He went to the cross. He suffered. And He died making payment for the sins of His people. Here is love, church. Here is love. Anyone have a greater example of love than the one who lays his life down for his friends? There is no greater love. And when we read this, we ought to be stunned at his love, amazed at his love, thankful for him. We ought to admire him. I hope you this week say thank you to Jesus for what he has done here, what he endured, and what he did on that cross accomplish salvation for those who did not deserve it. And then, out of that admiration, you would say, oh Jesus, make me like that. Help me to be like that. That when accused, I don't rise up in self-defense. When I suffer, I entrust myself to the Father. That I would rather suffer than sin that I'm willing to lay my life down for the sake of love. For the sake of others. Because that's what my Lord has done. Isn't our God by nature merciful that He would do this? Isn't He a God of love and compassion that He would send His Son to do this? Isn't our Lord incredible that He would endure this for us? Not because we are so lovable, but because He is love incarnate. He deserves our entire life devotion, doesn't He? Pray. You did not swerve from what the Father gave you to do, Jesus. And you have conquered the death you died. You are alive now. You rule and reign forever. One day you will return to judge the world. Thank You. We who have trusted You, we don't fear judgment because our sins have already been judged on Your cross. Pray for all those who will face Your judgment if they don't repent. Grant repentance now, Lord. Grant willingness to hear now, Lord. Grant open hearts now, Lord. Grant faith now. May we who trust You now live in admiration and imitation all You've done. Amen.